Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Spencer Lodge podcast, sponsored by the awesome Najahi tribe. Go check them out if you want to learn how to do anything. There is a huge amount of coaches on this e-learning platform for you. So, guys, personal development, if that's your thing, then guess what? Get onto the Najahi tribe, and you can benefit from all of the knowledge of all of the experts there. On today's episode of the podcast, is he a controversial person or is he a man on a mission? Time will tell. We will find out. I am really, really excited to get our next guest on. So let's just get into it. Cue the music, everyone. Roll the tape. Right, here we go, ladies and gentlemen. Louis Sohoyas. Have I got it right? You got it right. Yeah! It. <laughs> it's excellent stuff. Thank you very much for coming to join us on the show today, Louis. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad your first name's easy. <laughs> yeah, stick with, stick with that. <laughs> right, let me just give everyone a rundown. Louis is an Academy Award-winning filmmaker. He's the Executive Director of the Oce uh, Oceanic Preservation Society, which we'll, we'll refer to for the rest of the show as OPS. He's recognized as one of the top still photographers in the world, having generated iconic images for National Geographic for 18 years and hundreds of covers for other magazines. Believing that film could be the most powerful weapon in the world, Louis founded OPS with Silicon Valley entrepreneur Jim Clark in 2005. An ardent diver and dive photographer, Louis's mission is uh, to show the world the decline of our oceans, our planet's most crucial resource. Gosh, this is really, really important. Circling the globe dozens of times on photographic missions, he collects the imagery and stories underlying the compelling issues that challenge and threaten the natural world while connecting with environmentalists who are working to save the planet. Your first documentary film was The Cove. It won an Academy Award for Best Documentary Film of 2009 and over 75 other awards around the world. Wow. Okay. An annual dolphin hunt in secret, in secret Cove, of, I think it's Taiji, it's called in Japan, uh, suggests a microism of a larger picture, man's disregard for the planet. The film garnered immense critical praise and it's been seen by millions of viewers worldwide. I watched that with my chin on the floor for sure. Okay, second film, Racing Extinction, follows a team of artists and activists as they expose the hidden world of extinction with never-before-seen images. The film premiered on Discovery in 220 countries and territories on the same day and was nominated for an Emmy okay, and an Academy Award and sparked the hashtag Start With One Thing movement with partner Obscura Digital. Louis was the creative man behind the unprecedented large-scale video productions of endangered species onto the United Nations headquarters, Empire State Building, and the Vatican. He recently finished uh, directing a movie called Game Changers, a documentary, sorry, called Game Changers, uh, executive produced by James Cameron. And the film tells the story of James Wilk, an elite special forces trainer and winner of the Ultimate Fighter, as he travels around the world on a quest for the truth behind the world's most dangerous myth, that meat is necessary for protein. Strength and optimal health, yeah. Mm. Okay, what James discovers permanently changes his relationship with food and his definition of true strength. Through the production of compelling film and imagery underlined by moving narratives, contemporary crises and heroic film subject, Louis is radically changing how people perceive documentaries. Man, that is quite an introduction. You genuinely are someone that your documentaries have literally moved me into shock or 
and also hope. So thank you so much for coming to join us on the show. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a higher bar for some documentaries. You know, the an average producer in Hollywood, you know, it's all about the money. It's, you know, they say, there's a, a saying there, $10 in a box of popcorn. That's what movies are. You know, butts in seats is the euphemism. And we have to do all that. You know, we have to put butts in seats. We have to get people to watch it. But at the end of the day, it's not about the money for us. It's about changing the world. You know, so at the, if, if people come out of our, of our film and they say, oh, that was good, you know, you got $10 in a box of popcorn, we failed. Ours, with, our, with every film that we do, we want you to come out of there changed. You know, that's the objective. It's like, okay, you're looking at the world completely different. And what we do is it's not just to entertain. That's, that's like the, the lowest bar. It's like, how do you rearrange the DNA of a person in those 90 minutes you have alone with them while they're watching a documentary to sort of go through like a psychological boot camp using that same arc of entertainment? Um, but using it to, to change the world. And it's the most powerful weapon in the world, bar none. You know, you drop a bomb, you kill people, you make a, a film, you create allies, way more powerful. And yeah, the, the Cove, you know, that was the first film we did. It was the most winning documentary in history. It swept the first documentary to sweep all the film guilds. But we didn't make that film to, you know, to win awards, but, we did it so we could change something that was really awful going on. In, in Japan at that time, they were killing about 23,000 dolphins and porpoises every year for human consumption. They were eating them. And they were actually starting a program to distribute dolphin meat all over school systems for school lunch programs. And in Japan, you have to eat everything on your plate. So it's, you're forced to eat the dolphin meat, even though it's toxic. Not just a little bit, but a lot. It, all the dolphin meat that's been tested in Japan over the last 20 years has been shown to have anywhere from five to 5,000 times more mercury allowed by law if it was a fish. Of course, it's a mammal, so that, get, that presented a loophole, so they were able to distribute to school systems. But the, the film stopped that. In the last year that there was recorded um, you know, dolphin and, and porpoise deaths for human consumption, I think it was like 1,610. So it's over a 93% drop in dolphin deaths because of the activism around that film. So you know, we did that film. We thought, well, let's, that's interesting you know we we didn't stop it but we put a, a big halt to it you know the you know that it just fell off the cliff in terms of the number of animals they can sell because when we we talked to the japanese press and there was a lot of them that wanted to find out about this you might mention mercury mercury is like first of all mercury is the most toxic non-radioactive element in the world there's no reason it's in your system it's in there because of the burning of fossil fuels uh has residual amounts of uh, mercury in it goes into the water, it bioaccumulates up the food chain. So you have anywhere from like about a million times more mercury than in the background in the water. So it gets concentrated up the six tropic levels of the food chain. So you get at the very top with dolphins and tuna and swordfish and shark, it has a million times more uh, mercury than the, than the lowest animal in the food chain. So um, we thought, okay, this, this film made a big dent in that, that issue because when we talked to the Japanese press, we use the word mercury in every sentence because that's their Achilles heel. They, they got struck by something called Minamata's disease about in the 1950s. There was a company there that was intentionally putting mercury into the system and poisoning hundreds of thousands of people and killing thousands. And um, so when you mentioned mercury there in Japan, it was the first industrial accident that was publicized in a, in a mass way. So when you mentioned mercury, it, it's like, you know, coronavirus now. It's like, 
Okay, we remember that. So whenever I talk to the press there in Japan, I don't talk about these animals are sentient and intelligent, which they are. We'd mention Mercury. And so we'd mention Mercury in every sentence so they can't edit us out. You know, it's like, if they try to push it onto another subject, we bring it back to Mercury. Because, you know, when you're trying to do, when you're trying to change the world, you don't talk about the film, you talk about what the subject is. And that's kind of the key. And then our, our second film was Racing Extinction. And that became, you know, one of the most watched documentaries in human history, just like on the first day. 36 million people saw it on the first day. And that film's about species extinction. And, you know, there's a, you know, this is, I wanted to mention this. If you, you know, if you want to change the world, you don't need 51% to create that tipping point. You know, there's some really uh, great documentation, good studies that were done that show you need 10% of the population, not 17%, not 51%, 10%, at least but 10%. Donald Trump didn't need 51%, did he, to get voted in? So. <laughs> oh, don't get me started on him. <laughs> I, the, you know, I, I, I've got first-hand experience of the whole the mercury poisoning thing because um, I had Tony Robbins on the show with me last mm. September and he was quite poorly. And I've never seen Tony poorly, but he was suffering from mercury poisoning. And, and you know, he's a, he's, a, he's a big guy, you know, he's six foot seven or whatever he is. He's, you know, he's a big, big man. And so knowing him for as many years as I had with the amount of energy that he's got to see him poorly and to see him affected by it kind of really, I think when, you, when, you're, when you're exposed to people or, or someone near you that has experienced it or is experiencing it, it brings it home, doesn't it? I suppose a little bit like the coronavirus right now, you know, where we, it's, if it was a family member that was suffering right now, I'm sure we'd be far, far more attached to the health aspect than some people are to the economical aspect. Yeah, well, you know, I, I had mercury poisoning too. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you, there's-, there's oh, yeah, You the said last, that on Joe Rogan's podcast, didn't you? Yeah, the, the last scene in the movie, The Cove, we, we took a, a hair sample uh, of Hideki Moranuki, the deputy minister of fisheries, and just to see what his mercury levels were like. And his, we, we, I sent my hair in too. You could, you could take a, do a blood sample. You could do a hair sample. Both of them are diagnostic for, for mercury. And I ate a lot of fish. At that time, I was a pescatarian. My, my son is a, still a professional fisherman. So I had a freezer full of fresh, not well, fresh fish, frozen fish that he caught always in my basement for, you know, and I thought I was eating healthy for, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner. I'd have like fresh tuna. I loved it, you know, because I always thought I've got a one up on everybody else because I'm eating wild caught fish. This would be healthy. Well, we had his levels tested and he had eight times the level what's considered high. And my levels were 44 times higher. My levels were like, you know, five, almost five times higher than the deputy minister of fisheries for Japan. And it slowly, you know, I, I interviewed one of the doctors in Japan, and I said, what does it mean to have mercury poison? This is before I knew I had it. He says it slowly erases what it means to be human. You, you're dissolving the neurons in your brain. You're making less connections. It, it, uh, the first thing to go is your sense of touch, then your hearing, then your sense of smell. Your senses start to get eroded. So I had to quit. You know, this is about 12 years ago uh, when I first found out about it. And I, at, this, at that point, I thought you had to eat animal products to be big, strong, and healthy. And so I went, from, I went to a slaughterhouse in 1986 where there was killing cows. And I thought, okay, I can't be part of that, but I have to eat animals. So I became a pescatarian. That was kind of my transition. And then now, now I can't even eat fish. You know? And I was like, I love fish. That's what, that was my go-to thing. You know, people go to meat. I, go to, I went to fish. And uh, I met my first vegan down in, down in L.A. when we were at the, right up to the run-up to the Academy Awards. And 
it was her name was Rebecca Mink. She was a clothing designer. I said, "What do you eat?" And she goes, "Everything else." He says, "Well, you know, if you eat a burger. What do you put on your burger to make it taste good? Tomatoes, ketchup, mustard, so vegetables, right?" Says, "You know, everything that make, that's really good tasting. When you think about good tasting about meat, you know, the pepper, the salt, every, everything has is like a a plant." And I started thinking about that, and that. Uh, you know, very quickly transitioned to becoming a vegan, you know, not because of this, you know, I was an animal rights person, it was because I didn't, I wanted to live and, and not lose my memory and not, you know, lose my sensibility, like some of the people I filmed over in Japan that had mercury poisoning. So that, that that's why mercury to me was really uh, in the ocean issues, you know, people, you think they're eating like Tony Robbins, you know, I, I don't know how many, it's, it's anecdotal, we don't have real data for that, right? You know, the, Countries don't collect a lot of data on who has mercury poisoning, but with people going in and thinking that they're eating sushi and thinking they're being healthy, it's a, it's it's a problem. It's a big problem. And how how food, how how oblivious were you of this when when you ha you were having that test done in Japan? How 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 really oblivious were you? I tell you what, you know, the the transition I made. Uh, I was in at uh, Minamata University where they did the first test of people who had a, had. A, had mercury poisoning. I was talking to the doctor that that actually made the test. It was called a two-point nodal test. It's like it's like a protractor point. It's like and the closer you uh, can feel two points together on a fingertip, that means you're you're not affected. Then it gets wider and wider, and that's diagnostic of how much of mercury poisoning you have. And I was saying, well, how do you know how much poison is in the fish supplies? Because that's skeezy market. Uh, they keep data of all the fish that were caught all around the world. So a, a shipment will come in from Alaska of tuna, and they have a book there. And so they'll, you know, somebody from the labs will go and they'll take a, you know, a sample of that and they'll test it. Of course, by the time the sample comes back, those fish are all gone. You know, I mean, they've been sold. All mm. they know is like in, in the review mirror, they know that okay, how much poison is in the fish supply? And I was looking at like through this huge book, and I was like. Most of the, the most toxic fish were off the coast of the, the northeast coast of the United States and the western coast of the United States, like you know, where I would get fish from. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, it and I thought, well, God, you know, I'm eating a lot of fish, I'm curious, you know, how much poisoning I have. And that was that was the that was the step. Um, but to, I mean, the shock that went through me, I mean, to, to understand that what you've been eating is poisoning you. This, the food that you think is good and nourishing and making you big and strong and virility and you know, your masculinity, your strength, you know, protein, it, it's killing me. It's like, I mean, I can still remember that like, oh my God, what am I gonna do? I'm gonna die, I'm gonna shrivel up and die because you can't survive on plants. And then I started to realize that you know, all protein originates in plants. Even the fish you get in the ocean, they're getting it from fish that ate plants. You know, so there's this, this whole, you know, it's kind of an intellectual process you have to go through to say, okay, I'm going to be okay. Not, not only am I going to be okay, I'm going to do better because plants are the best source of everything, you know, micronutrients for protein, for, for everything. And that was, kind, you know, kind of the, the journey I was on is like, you know, well, the second film that we did was about, called Racing Extinction. And people say, well, what can I do? Like, there's, there's several major drivers of extinction. 
but it all comes down to food again. The biggest driver of extinction is habitat destruction. There's so many people right now that we need to go and take natural areas and turn it over to, to grazing land for animals that we in turn eat. You know, the biggest threat in Africa of some species is not poaching, it's habitat destruction for wild, for wild species that are being taken over by, you know, cows and sheep. So that, that's, uh, if you, the, the crazy thing is if you wanna save the world, change what's on your plate. It's better for you, it's better for the environment, it's better for the animals. You know, the, the raising of animals for human consumption is uh, the biggest cause of, you know, habitat destruction, freshwater pollution, 14.5% of climate change, um, 80 to 85% of our chronic diseases are caused by what we put in our mouth, which is mainly animal products. Uh, I'm doing a film right now on Alzheimer's. You know, there's right down the street in Sausalito where I, where I live, there's a, a doctor who reversed heart disease. It was the first, um, he's the first person to actually do this, where he reversed heart disease using a whole foods plant-based diet. This is 42 years ago. And then he did it with diabetes. He did it with prostate cancer, which is an extension, I guess, is related to breast cancer. And now he's doing it with Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is the, it's going to overtake heart disease as our number one disease, chronic disease around the world. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. you just said something there. Are you telling me there's a doctor that's developed a plant-based diet that can reverse the effects of Alzheimer's? He's doing studies right now, but yeah, it looks like, I mean, he can't, you know, there's only, I don't know how much I can talk about it because the study's not done yet. We're right, he's right in the middle of it right now. And okay. we're literally, I was there uh, down the street, even with coronavirus, there's, they're still doing, they're actually do, uh, doing their studies with people over Zoom, just the way that we're doing this now. Everybody's had a transition. But about uh, people are getting, people with, I'm going to go ahead and say it because I don't care. <laughs> I mean, I do care that I don't want to tank a study. I don't think it'll make a, a big difference, but early studies are showing that it's working. And I've got to, to, to qualify that. Well, let's, let's set it up a little bit. Sure. Alzheimer's, there's no known cure for Alzheimer's. One out of three people in the world are going to be affected by this because it's, it's rising, because we're eating more meat, we're eating more processed foods, we're eating more terrible, we're, you know, we're sitting at our computers longer, we're, you know, we're, we're not as active as we were hundred years ago and so this is causing a, a whole chain of, of, of problems in the brain it's all related to the brain what you're putting in your body and how it's affecting your brain how much exercise you get but he, did, he does Dr. Dean Ornish does uh, there's only four pillars of his program whole foods plant-based diet exercise meditation relaxing get lowering your cortisone levels and then social support you know where as we become you know as older people uh, become less important to our society. They be become isolated. You're not making as many connections in your brain. That's one of the theories. But about 60% of the people that are in the test right now with early stage Alzheimer's, this, these are not mid-stage to late. Mm -hmm. You're not going to reverse it if you're too far gone, but there's like a tipping point. Uh, there's something called a MOCA test and they have another test for cognitive issues. People, about 60% of the people are getting better that have early stage Alzheimer's. And that's never been done. There's no drug that can do this. They spent billions and billions of dollars. We spent decades trying to find a drug to cure it and nothing's been known to do it. By the way, same thing happened with uh, 42 years ago when he's re reversing heart disease. People said, well, once you have heart disease, that's it. It's a death sentence. Either, either you have, um, Dr. Dean Ornish was doing 
uh, it was helping with the first, the guy that developed uh, bypass surgery, was literally bypassing the problem, right? They're just taking an artery from your leg and inserting it and, and making it go around the blockage and, or stents. You know, that was the way that you really, or cholesterol, the statins, cholesterol reducing drugs. But he thought there must be, a, there were studies that were done with animals that they could reverse. And people said, well, that works with the animals. He said, well, he's a, he was a college student. He thought, well, why wouldn't it work with people? You know, we do all of our tests on animals because saying you can't reverse heart disease. That's how ingrained the system, the medical system was. You can't reverse heart disease because it has to be done with this, these really serious interventions. Anyway, he, he, he proved that you could reverse heart disease, and then he went on to do it, you know, like I said, with diabetes, uh, uh, obesity, you know, a lot of these other chronic diseases. Now he's working on, 42 year, years later, he's working on Alzheimer's. What's his name? And it looks like Dr. Dean Ornish. O-R-N-I-S-H. And it looks like it's working. And like, listen, he's only done, he's just starting the third cohort. There's gonna be five or six of them. He needs to, to do about 100 people, but the, the early results show that, uh, I hope I'm not talking too much out of turn, but it, it shows promise, a lot more promise than any of the drugs that are being done right now, for sure. And oh, this is interesting too. Okay, so this, uh, as part of, D Dean introduced me to these two researchers down in Loma Linda, California. The, Loma Linda is one of the five known places in the world, the, the blue zones. These are places where people live the longest without chronic disease. So they're living on average about 10 years longer than, than the rest of us. And in Loma Linda, it's a blue zone because they're Seventh-day Adventists. They're vegetarians, you know, by, you know, we're, I can't read, I can't quote the passage from the Bible, but it's in my, Genesis. My, my, my grandparents were Seventh-day Adventists. Really? Okay, well, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, so, you know, the, there's a, I can't remember what part of Genesis, but like God was supposed to have said, you know, let the, the fruit of the trees be thy meat. So you go to the Loma Linda grocery store, and about 40% of the population there, a population of about 24,000, 40% of them are head towards vegetarianism. Not strict, but they're, you know, it's their religion. So you go to their equivalent of like the big market there, like, you know, America would be like their Whole Foods, you know, like some big grocery store chain. Uh, and they don't even have a meat market. You know, they have milk, like cow's milk, but mm -hmm. it's on the bottom shelf, mm -hmm. you know, and there's all, there's all other plant-based milks. And you go to the, I, I tell you, you go there and it's like, you ever see the movie Cocoon? Uh -huh. Like all the old people, uh -huh, have yeah, a, yeah. yeah. It's like that. You go to the church and there's people, People like in their 90s, like a couple that are like in their 90s, swinging hands, like school kids coming to church. They're, um, they're in the parks doing Tai Chi. They're biking. They're the, like this guy mountain biking. He's like, you know, 10 years older than me. I was like, hold on. I mean, can I photograph you? He's like, you know, like 70 years old and he's doing mountain bikes. He's got his helmet. I was like one of the, one of the bros, right? And he's going like jumping over shit. And it's like, this, this is common there. And you know, and it's, it's, you know, to be, to be clear, it's not just the whole food plant-based diet, it's their lifestyle, because the Seventh-day Adventists, they recognize the Sabbath, you know, the, which is, I guess, on Friday at sunset, they take a day to relax. It's about community. Um, it's about, you know, you know, being with each other. So there's, there's like the Blue Zones, there's, uh, they're, they're, they're doing it there for religious reasons. They're not doing it because they want to be a blue zone. All these places, it just happened naturally. These five known blue zones, it's like Ikaria in Greece. It's called the island where people forget to die. Uh, Okinawa, the land of the immortals. These are before the blue zones were actually discovered. People yeah. knew that there's these collections of people where people live the longest. And a friend of mine, Dan Butner, who worked at National 
National Geographic. He's still a National Geographic fellow. Did a story in the about the year 2000 on the Blue Zones, and now he's made it his life mission to popularize this. You know, how do you live longer without chronic disease? And I'm like, I'm just fascinated by this because you know, you get to be my age. You know, I don't want to be a top athlete with nutrition, but I want to, you know, live long. I want to be healthy. I, you know, working around Alzheimer's patients. You don't want to lose your memory because that's everything. You know, yeah. you, and and one out of three people in the world would be affected, would be touched by this. You know, if, if the numbers keep on escalating the way that they are, then, but by touch, by I mean, either you're going to get it, your mate's going to get it, or you're going to take care of parents that have it. And it devastates. It's like it's like the coronavirus, except it, you die over a ten year period. In a ten year period, it gives you a lot of chance to lose your, I, I, your it, mind. It, look, it's 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 for me <clears throat> probably one of the worst ways to die, but also one of the worst ways ways to lose a family member because you care for somebody that doesn't know you, and when when that happens, it's it, it must be heartbreaking. You know, there's been enough content out there where where there's been people whose parents don't know who they are and just. You, you, to, to think of that as unimaginable. Let me just take you back a little bit because I want to explore everything and I don't want to miss anything. When you found out you had mercury poisoning, <clears throat> what was the first thing you thought with regards to your family? Well, I'm a selfish person. First thing was I was thinking about myself. You know, mm -hmm. um, I, you know, my son is a fisherman, still is a fisherman. So, you know, he knows my my journey and he still fishes he's down in antigua in the west indies right now and you know that's what he's living on and i'm thinking you know you got a certain amount of time right when you're you're young you know all this stuff catches up to you you know meat is not your friend and over to the you know as, as you get older like your 40s 50s and 60s it becomes accelerated so whatever you know is junking up your system is going to start to get to a point where your, your immune system can't overcome it. Your body starts to, you know, for, you know, simplistic terms starts to clog up. And so I think he's got some time, but, you know, I hope he, you know, sees the light eventually, but this is how he makes his living. When somebody makes their living out of doing something, yeah, but he really makes difficult. he makes his living by fishing. But you know, you you know the damage that it, it causes and the way that you express it. It's like, did did he not when he realised that that was that was happening to you? Did he not say, okay, fine, I catch the fish, but hey, I better eat something else. Yeah, I think he he did that at first, but I think you know, there's a lot of. I mean, first of all, he's getting it, and it's not, you know, really costing him anything to eat, mm -hmm. right? Even yeah. though it's toxic, and I think a lot of people feel the same way, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I worry, you know, I, I go, a lot of my family, I've, I've, you know, turned a lot of my, you know, my, my nephews now are almost completely really healthy guys. Like they eat way better than me, especially one, one of them's in medical school. He's listened. He's the one that, that told me about uh, uh, Joe Rogan. He said two or three years ago, he says, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta see this guy. Um, <laughs> but he, but now he's eating like, you know, his, his breakfast is like, you know, it's just unbelievable the way he's just really clean, whole foods, plant-based diet, you know, no, no processed food. Um, my brother's going that way. You know, I'd go, I go to his refrigerator, my brother and I'd say, look, look at that. You got a pound of butter there. He says, oh, I just eat a little bit of it. I says, well, you got a little bit of it, but that pound is going somewhere. 
if it's eventually it's going to go all through your system. I, that's how I look at it. It's like whatever you put in that refrigerator, you know, that food is going to eventually go through your body and go through your brain. You know, your brain is like a, a two and a half, a three pound organ. It consumes 25% of the energy it needs. It needs a lot of, uh, you know, it, it, your, your body's trying to support this thing. And all, everything that's in your refrigerator is going to get filtered through this. So, you know, I, I look at everything I, you know, we bring into the house and I think, how will this look going through my body? How will this be? You know, so we don't eat process, processed foods. Um, but my family, to answer your question, is I'd say mostly, you know, I've, I've switched some of them. My mom, she's 94 and she still eats like crap, you know. And, <laughs> But she's had, you know, she's had a lot of medical issues. So she's still, you know, she does all these medications, you know, that to her blood thinning. You know, some people are almost too late to get to them, you know, like mm -hmm. the people you love, the, you know, you, it's hard. It's the hardest thing in the world is to get people to switch their diet. They usually have to, it's almost like drugs. You have to hit rock bottom. You have to have a chronic disease, like you have to be diagnosed with diabetes or heart disease or you know, obesity, your dad, your, your doctor's going to say, well, you know, keep on living like this. It's, it's like the smokers though, isn't it? You know, when the doctor says to the smokers that you one more cigarette, you're going to get lung cancer and die. It's very easy to stop smoking immediately. When, when you haven't got that threat, then it's quite difficult to get from somewhere to nowhere. And so a lot of people uh, are always going to be stuck in that way of that habit for me and it's the same as business you know is i find in business when people hit rock bottom that's when you can do stuff with them but while they're comfortable and, and again that's where great inventions come from as well don't they it's all this kind of stuff you know they're, they're they're rallying around to find a vaccine for coronavirus and you know the simple things in business all of a sudden take place very quickly when it's like now or never it's like do or die and i think that that's yeah but you know what you're, you know you bring up business and it, it's really interesting too because there's there's a lot of ways to make money as you know mm -hmm. and but the only thing that's gonna you know if your end goal like like with a film if your end goal is to only make uh, money you're gonna be very limited at the joy that you can feel because here's the other thing about doing what i do or doing what a financial planner does it can be the same thing no matter what you're doing if you're not doing it to help other people to get to another level of of joy you know like money getting having more money is not going to give you more joy it'll give you short-term happiness it'll give you a certain amount of security which you can conflate as being happy but joy the joy that you, you the only thing that's going to make you truly feel human is like when you're giving something back to somebody that's makes them a better human so if the business if the, if the film's not doing it you're not going to get that true joy if you're if your business isn't doing that if if that money is being you know come by you know you know investing in fossil fuels you know you're not doing anything to help the rest of the planet and you know that so that if you're making that kind of sacrifice for like my personal wealth is on the back of harming the environment and species and you know it, but i'm doing better that you know living with that's not going to make you a better person i would I would say that it's going to make you, uh, you know, feel the opposite. Yeah. So I, do you know so, what? It's funny you talk about being a financial advisor because that's what I was. And so for many years, I, I literally was a financial advisor. I gave the advice to people. But my, my, my kind of, and the reason I had so much success doing it is because I had an overwhelming desire to want to stop people making stupid decisions. 
And I saw so many people that were 65 years old and broke going into retirement because they'd made stupid decisions along the way that I just, I was so, I was so vexed by it and so bothered by it that it was like, I have to stop people making these stupid decisions. Explain what, what, what are stupid decisions? Well, the, the, most people get to retirement at 65 years old and they're probably going to live for another 30 years. And in, in some places that some people will say, well, you know, if I don't have enough money when I retire, I can keep on working. But when you're 40 years old, how do you know how healthy you're going to be at 65? So you can't get a guarantee your health, number one. Okay, and you can't guarantee an employer is going to want to give you a job because most companies would rather employ two 30-year-old guys for half the price than employ one guy, for, one guy at 65. And so you, you get past your usefulness in, in lots of corporate America, corporate world type businesses. And so if you then do live for 30 years and you've worked, you know, you've been born, your first 10 years, you're a kid, second 10 years, you're a teenager, third 10 years, you're kind of, you're not sensible with money between the age of 20 and 30. You might put the deposit down for the first house. You might, you know, get married in that time, but you're not making the best decisions. And, and also you're not worth a huge amount to most companies until you get past the age of 30, because what comes with enthusiasm also brings experience as well. And so, as you go through from 30 through to 50, you're very valuable in the business. Typically 50, the income, and again, look at the charts, starts to plateau out. And, and then you, you know, go into the, you know, golden, I mean, gold watch or gold carriage clock or whatever it is, point at 65 in that whole corporate environment. You've worked hard all your life. And as you've worked hard, you've had to spend more because you've had children, you've got college, you've got a bigger house, extra cars, holidays, that kind of stuff to pay for. But you've got to save and plan to make sure you've got enough money to potentially last you 30 years. And if you go back 100 years in China and India, the mentality was spend your money on your children, educate them well so that they can look after you when you're old. But in, in the Western world, we just didn't behave like that, you know. And today, you know, if, if I, if, if I, if my, if my parents knew they had to rely on me for their retirement, I'm sure they'd be mortified. But nonetheless, that's how it was in some parts of the world. So I used to sit down with people and I'm like, you're 40 years old, you've got two kids and you have nothing planned for your retirement. No. So what are you going to do when you get to 65 and you're broke? Oh, well, I'll worry about that later. It's not important now. For me, it's like, this is really important. Or take something, I don't know, just take life insurance. You're, you're married, you have a family and you've got no life insurance. And if you then die, your wife, who's then looking after the family, has to not only uh, food and clothes and put a roof over the kid's head, but she's got a plan for her future as well. And to me, that's just, it's, it's irresponsible if you don't take this seriously. And the facts, the evidence demonstrate that so many people get to retirement don't have enough money, okay, just to live a comfortable life. I'm not talking about rock star Liberace stuff here. I'm talking about a comfortable life. And so I was just, I was so compelled to want to shake people into doing something sensible, shake people into seeing the light that, look, if you don't do this, no one's going to do it for you. And so that's the kind of place I've always come from. And, you know, Martin that's worked with you, I know very well, he, he, he knows that. And, 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 and it, what I, I never had, my, my focus was never on making money. It was just teaching people common sense because common sense genuinely can help people when it comes to these common sense things. See, we're doing the same thing, just through different, uh, different avenues. You're, you're, working, you know, you're working on financial planning. I, I'm, I'm working on um, basically trying to overhaul our food system because it's, it's, and by the way, it's all related, right? You know, it's like, you're not going to 
you're not going to be able to retire at 65. Imagine if you, you, you get diagnosed uh, with Alzheimer's and you're 50, you know, and this is happening pretty common. You know, some of the people through these cohorts are, are pretty young. Um, yeah, so it's, it's the same kind of thing, but I, I'm looking at, you know, with the same sort of horror at like what people put in their mouths and, and, and people aren't making the connection. You know, like, oh, I'll deal with this later. Like, you know, do you really want to be on statins? You know, uh, it's, it's harder to reverse a disease than it is to prevent it. Prevention is really easy. You just start eating better now, and the, down, the downstream effects, you know, occur all through your life. You feel better instantly, you know, because you can't, you can't get fat on a whole foods plant-based diet. You can't, you know, you're, you'll get filled up before you can, you know. You know what, your, your, your film Game Changer really, really shook me to the core. And I instantly uh -huh. stopped eating meat as soon as I watched that. I really? Instantly, lit the very next day, it was like, this is insane. Why, and this is like, what, what on earth is going on? Why are we, be, why are we eating meat? Why, why, are we being, why are we being lied to about this stuff? Why, hold on a minute, no. no you know, and I go to the gym in the morning and it's kind of like, yeah, you know, the guys are all, I don't, but the guys are all having their protein shakes and they were like, yeah, I got to have some chicken at lunchtime and all this kind of stuff. And I sat watching your film and uh, your documentary and, and I came away from it and I was like, God, why are people not getting this? And then what happened was really interesting. Uh, I started seeing the naysayers and the people that were, arguing against it and you know there was that 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 not bodybuilder that was the strongest man dude the guy with the, the sideburns and the beard I forget yeah, Patrick Patrick Baboumian German yeah. dude yeah Patrick Baboumian yeah that's it so everyone not everyone but there was there was oh yeah no well yeah of course he doesn't eat meat but he's on steroids all the time that's why he looks the way he does and this kind of stuff so the people were you know and you always get that won't you you'd always get people that go you know what this is rubbish because okay this is rubbish because but the the, the evidence I think once, what, and again, this is what you do well, because, because you've made a number of documentaries. The first one I saw, obviously, was the COVID. And it, was, it was very compelling. So it, it, you, you kind of earn your stripes in credible documentary making, don't you? If you can, if you can keep bringing back uh, evidence-based um, information that can really add value to people. If you can do that consistently, then you can start to be trusted, I suppose. Um, and so I, I found the code very compelling. And when I watched Game Changers, I honestly sat there and, and I was, I just thought I felt like an idiot. That's what I did. I, I felt like an idiot. Well, um, I think we've all been fooled, right? I mean, we're all, we're all, you know, I think we're all, you know, living in, you know, Plato's cave a little bit, you know, like where, you know, that analogy where we're looking for the flickers in the wall and somebody goes outside the cave and they say, hey, well, that was just caused by a fire behind the wall. Those were the flickers. And that person is tasked with trying to tell people what he just saw, that they've been in a cave, you know, and I think that that analogy works for a lot of things, you know, probably nothing probably as, you know, as you're finding with, you know, financial planning or finding with, you know, trying to get people to See, I, that the see I, don't, I don't do the financial planning now. I do something else because I, 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 I hate the word entrepreneur. I, I can't bear that word. Anyway, I've I, I built businesses and there's one thing that I'm very passionate about and that's, that's the world of sales and, and it's the way that salespeople are treated. So I, I hate that architects, lawyers, doctors, um, 
operations managers, uh, supply chain people, anybody that's not in a sales role in a company hates salespeople or dislikes them. But every one of them have got a job because salespeople are bringing the revenue through the door to get that company funded. And so to me, it's like, give the, and a lot of salespeople generally don't get their steady salary every month. They work on commission only. And it's like, give these guys some respect. Everything goes to zero at the beginning of every month. They've still got to feed a family. They've still got to put a roof over their head. Okay. They have to deal with psychological ups and downs on a daily basis. It's like one minute they're getting rejection. The next minute they get an acceptance. You know, they get in the car in the morning and they punch the ceiling because they've, they've made a sale. They get in the car in the afternoon. Okay. And their heads between their knees, their towels between their legs. They're miserable because they didn't make their sale. Nobody else in business is accepting that as often with the great frequency that they do. So for me, it's like, I'm really passionate about teaching people uh, to understand salespeople have a role and they're important, but also teaching salespeople how important it is to be good at what they do. And whether it's financial planning or that, it comes from a real place of wanting to make a difference there. And, but I can't remember where it started. So when did it start for you? I know you made, you've made your documentaries, but it must have start, started. You must have been thinking about certain issues many, many years ago. Where, where did it begin? Yeah. Um. I think it was, it was probably back in the 1960s, you know, listening to music, listen, uh, listening to my, my musical heroes, you know, um, at that point it was like the, the folk music uh, revolution that was going on, you know, Bob Dylan, uh, which was started by Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger and the, the Weavers, um, you know, for the people that, you know, that are probably too young to even have known these songs maybe you're part of the world people don't know it but like you know this land is this land is your land by woody guthrie so it's mm -hmm. so an anthem over here um so i it traveled it traveled yeah yeah <laughs> did, i guess it did pretty well so but he, he was a hero and he was he, lo he looked after you know union workers he was a, a revolutionary uh social revolutionary at this time his his mate was pete seeger and i interviewed him Pete Seeger when I was probably about 16 or 17 years old. I did my first cross-country trip to interview him. He was protesting a nuclear power plant, and I sat around a campfire. It was the first annual Croton Point River Revival. This is upstate New York along mm -hmm. the Hudson River. And so I'm interviewing Pete Seeger, and this is backstage. So this is, a set, this is like one of my heroes, right? We're sitting around a campfire, and there's like Arlo Guthrie, Woody Guthrie's son playing over there. There's Elizabeth Cotton. So I'm, now I'm, you know, these people that you, you heard on the radio, now I'm backstage with these. It's not backstage. It was like out in a field with tents, and there were, you know, people playing, you know, music for the musicians playing music for each other. And I felt like I was with this tribe of people that were lit up you know, um, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, creatively. And I wanted what they had, you know, I wanted to have that sort of connectedness and they were, you know, they're all working for, you know, this, it, it took me a, a long time to sort of discover that, you know, that it wasn't about me, you know, I could be a, the world's best photographer, but who cares if it's not, if you're not in service to somebody else, again, it's just like, it's just noise. You know, and you can get enough information out there that, you know, you, you have the money, you have fame, you have, you know, the sort of society's view of what success is, and it doesn't give you happiness. So once you've achieved that, it's like, oh, that, there's something that leaves you empty because you don't have that pure joy that I'm talking about that comes from being in service to, to everyone else and not you. And I think these musicians, uh, musicians found that, you know, they had that with each other. There was a whole community that supported that. And when I started, uh, working at National Geographic. I was the first photographer they hired in about 
a decade, over a decade, about 11 years, new photographer. And I started doing stories that I really loved to do, sort of on the vein of like Woody Guthrie was doing, but with photography. I, I, the first story I proposed for them was on on the uh, on garbage and recycling. At, the, at that time, this is 1980, there was only one mandatory recycling program in all of America. We were just throwing away all of our metal, all of our you know, stuff that was really valuable, you know, these single use items and throwing them away. To me, it was like a, a waste. And so I proposed a story on garbage and recycling back in 1980. They, they said, well, I guess, you know, I was working there for a summer job. I'd won this, this uh, award called College Photographer of the Year, which allowed me to work the, the magazine for a summer. But after that, I was out in the street and I thought, well, I've got to, you know, propose something to them that they want me to, to keep me around. So I proposed the story. They liked it. It became a cover story. It became the most popular story of the year. They ended up keeping me. And I started, and so I, I made garbage look good, right? You know, I was like, I was the, like the kid that like, I could make anything look good. You know, so then, then they, what happened was I got into a trap and the trap is like, it's synonymous with a lot of traps that people feel where you get this, you know, you get into the adulation. I'm working at National Geographic. I'm like, a, you know, this young wonderkin. But then they started giving me stories that I didn't want to do that weren't necessarily like, you know, in that vein. It was like I was I was almost going to like doing jingles. You know, I was like the musician that like wanted to do like these life changing anthems. And they're giving me, hey, yeah, give us something on, you know, Daniel Boone. Let's give us something on on cars. And it's like, no, I want to do these life changing stories. So I would always quit. And then Geographic, every time I quit Geographic, would hire me back and they would double my salary until I became the, also the highest paid guy there. But, it, but I was still, you know, eventually I, I started to get more in line with what I wanted to do and what, what, I, what I could do because I could demand that because I was, you know, in demand. And then, uh, and then it's a long story, like why I, I, I left there, but um, my own transition, like well, I was doing a story for National Geographic, but this is back in 1993, like during the, the like almost pre, I want to say pre-internet, but like Netscape, the first commercial internet browser was like brand new. It, when I was researching a story on the information revolution for National Geographic, that was like a hot story. And the guy that started that was Jim Clark. He was like the, the Steve Jobs of my generation. You know, he started Silicon Graphics was the first uh, 3D graphics engine, which allowed you to create, you know, gaming in three three dimensions in real time. And, yeah. you know, CAD cams all became possible because of the chip you, you developed. Um, I wanted to photograph him for that story. But like, again, he was like Steve Jobs. He couldn't, he was on top. You could, I couldn't get near him even when I was working for National Geographic for that part of that story. So I moved on from, for, from uh, Geographic and started working for Fortune magazine, photographing people with too much money, you know, the like, very wealthy people, you know, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, you know, Larry Ellison, the richest people in the world. So that's what I, that's what I was hanging out with every week, you know, just going from place to place. And eventually I was photographing Jim Clark as my, my hero, right? It's like, oh my God, I couldn't photograph him, you know, seven, eight years ago, but now I'm photographing for the cover of Fortune magazine. And he just built the world's, uh, the, the, a, a private sailing yacht with the largest mast in the world. It was like being made over in Holland. We started, uh, so I, I, I photographed him on top of the mast, like over at the, uh, the fifth spreader. And I went up, up to the top and I photographed him. You know, it was like a sort of a sprinkly day, smoking a Cohiba, he has a red rain jacket. And, I, and I'm terrified of heights. And I got my, my dad died from a fall 
And so I'm like up there hanging by a rope and, you know, the mast was just actually put in that morning. So I'm hanging up there. It's obviously it's a strong, you know, it's not going to crash because I'm up there, but I, it doesn't matter how, you know, you the stories you got to tell yourself, Oh, it's going to break. It's never been tested. Somebody forgot to bolt something on. Anyway, I'm hanging up. We, I do this picture. That was an amazing picture. It was on the cover of fortune. I'm hanging out with Clark that evening in Amsterdam. And we find out two things about each other. We both like to drink and we both, both like to dive three and he, he likes to he wanted to take pictures he was starting another company called shutterfly and he said to me louis would you teach me how to be a good photographer and you know he started three companies from scratch and made them all worth over a billion dollars and i said to jim i said you know i'll teach you how to be a great photographer you teach me how to be a billionaire <laughs> and we ended up uh, traveling around the world and taking pictures with each other for, for over about you know maybe a, a several like a 10-year period oh, wow. and he built he built the best underwater camera the world ever made. Uh, and I learned a lot about visionaries, you know, because I was hanging around at Fortune magazine and then my best, he became my best friend. And we were, you know, I just, just understood the way that he thought, you know, he, he's not a, you know, he was, he's brilliant. You know, uh, he, st he started Netscape, the first commercial internet browser, uh, three, you know. Yeah, I know, I know Netscape, I remember. Yeah. and. And, but you know, now I'm, I'm hanging out with him. And I see how he operates on an everyday basis and how tenacious he was. And he says, like, listen, you know, he said, intelligence is equally distributed all around the world. And I'm not that smart. What I've got over other people is I'm tenacious. You know, he was from a, a trailer park and, in West Texas. And he just felt the urge to shoot out of there and, and get out of there. And it was pretty late in life that he figured out that he was he was smart, you know, uh, he was in the Navy. Anyway, uh, so we, we, I, I learned a lot by hanging out with somebody that routinely hits it out of the park financially and and what it takes to do that. And, you know, I guess it was about our, our third time in the Galapagos. We were diving in a marine sanctuary. And we came up and there was, you know, we looked around us and, you know, there's all fishing boats in a marine sanctuary. And he said, somebody should do something about this. And I said, uh, how about you and I? So what do you mean? I said, well, we'll use your money and my eye and we'll make films. And I had never made a film before. I had no real right to, you know, you know, to, to ask his money so I could make films. But I felt like, okay, I'm going to start a new career, you know, based on like, he helped send man to the moon when he was in college. He, you know, sped up the computers to make good on John F. Kennedy's, you know, uh, challenge for Americans to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. Jim heard that, you know, on, you know, when he was working at uh, Boeing, who's building the Saturn rocket engines and, you know, said to his boss, this is never going to happen unless we speed up these computers. Can I do that? The boss gave him permission to do it. He did it. And we went to, you know, to the moon because of Jim. So this is my best friend, right? Cool. And... Um, so now we're making, I'm going to make movies, right? I, I quit my job at, at fortune magazine and I, now Jim had, in the meantime, had built another boat. It's the world's largest private sailing boat and we're on it in the Caribbean, uh, St. Bart's, I think it was. And my son is playing, you know, so all of our, our families are on the boat, Jim's boat, this beautiful 300 foot boat, three masted schooner, gorgeous thing. And my son is playing on the beach with another kid happens to be Steven Spielberg's kid. And St Steven had done Jurassic Park using Jim's computer, Silicon Graphics. So he came over to the boat to meet, you know, the, the father of his, of, of his son's new friend. 
and, and Jim, who he did Jurassic Park with. And well, I get Spielberg alone, I say for a couple of minutes, because I'm like, I don't know anything about film. I say, do you have any advice for a first time filmmaker? And he goes, <laughs> yeah, never make a movie involving boats or animals. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm the world's <laughs> most successful film director. <laughs> Tell me, like, and I, I'm starting the Oceanic Preservation Society with Jim Clark. And it's going to involve a lot of boats and only animals. And, you know, it was like the horror. Like, it was like, you know, oh, my God, you know, maybe this, is, this could be a big mistake. But, of course, the first film we did was The Cove. And The Cove became this, uh, you know, this, this huge success. And, it, again, with a lot of Jim's help, you know, it, what, one thing I learned from him is it's, it's like you surround yourself with the best people you possibly can. You know, so we had a great, you know, a great composer to do an incredible musical score. We had a great editor, great producer, great writer. Um, you know, we had, we already had some great footage already, you know, because of, you know, the, the, the team we had built and, you know, to, to get the footage that was in the code. And that was risky stuff, uh, wasn't it? Trying to get that footage. It was, uh, you know, we, we all could have been hurt, jailed, killed for sure. And, you know, I don't think, a. It was, I don't think that film could really be done by like a normal film crew. Like, I don't know if I could do that film again now. You know what I mean? It's, a, it's very difficult to do it. You know, certainly with the, you know, I myself, it's difficult because I'm, I'm actually, you know, people, people Google you and they're like, oh, you're one of them. <laughs> uh, but it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it, was, it, was, it was definitely a, um, for about two years, it was definitely a, a heart pounder to go to Japan. You know, we'd, we make it look like it's one or two trips, but we were actually there like six or seven times. And every time I came back, there's a really good intel system in Japan. I would, I would come into the country and I'd be met by the police. Or I'd go to Taiji, the town where they were killing the dolphins, and you know, I'd take a train. And at the, at, the, at the train station, I was met by the chief of police. You know, everywhere we go, you know, we go out, we go out of the hotel at night, we're being followed by the police. So it was this cat and mouse game with the police for for a long time. And eventually, uh, the, the chief of police there didn't speak English himself, but he threw an interpreter that he brought with him. He said, the chief wants to know, like, how long you're gonna be in the country this time? And I said, well, that's kind of, you know, rude, you know, to ask a, a visitor to your country, like, how long he's gonna stay? And I said, why does he wanna know? He says, well, he wants to get some sleep. Because <laughs> 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 whenever we go out, he had to have, to have, have like, you know, they're you can imagine the police department yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, uh, was pretty you know, stretched and now the, the visitors, they don't know what's going on because we were good enough. We were smart enough to sort of like, you know, to take them off the tail. People haven't seen the movie. It's like a, you know, uh, Rolling Stone said the Cove is like a, a cross between the Bourne Identity and Flipper. <laughs> and it's a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an exciting film. It's a, you know, like all of our films. It's like, they're, you know, there's a, a bit of danger. There's a bit of excitement to it. It's, you're not going to see like a normal documentary. So I think that's what we bring to the table that, you know. Do you, uh, do you, do, which part of that journey do you enjoy the most? Do you enjoy the, the, the making of it or do you, do you enjoy the finished article? What, what bit do you, or, or seeing people's reactions? What is it you like? All of it, all of it. You know, like I think every, every you know, there's, short-term goals, medium-term goals, and long-term goals with business as well, right? And it's the same thing with filmmaking. And every part of that's important. So like when we're going out to do a scene, even if we don't think it's going to make it, you know, we give it our all 100%. Like let's, let's use this day. We wake up this day. 
let's you know use the light let's use our creativity you know go around and check everybody do you have any ideas how can we make this scene better where can we put a camera with the interesting can we put a, a, a micro a microphone how can we make this better than than we we think we can and we're working together for that so that so every day that we go out and shooting a, a sequence, a piece of film, it's like, that's the most important thing in the world. Then you, you, you do that over a year or two, and you have this amazing collection of material. Like uh, the writer for uh, all of my films has been Mark Monroe. Amazing. He's worked on, on several Academy Award-winning films now. How do you get, how do you get people that. like him? How, you know, how do you find them? How do you choose them? How do you convince them? Uh, well... Mark wasn't so well known. I mean, we did, we came up together, you know, um, the Cove was the film that really, you know, he was working, he, he was pretty well known in the documentary world. But then when we, when the team won the Academy Award, you know, it's, it's not just me, you know, I've got a little gold man, but it's really the team that did it, you know, then it's like, you know, it's like, I, I don't know if it sounds horrible, I guess, or but like you, 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 you bring up everybody with you, right? If you can, if they, they want to take that journey, it's like, okay, we did this before. You know, so Mark is back again. It's easy to get, you know, because, but he wasn't well known like he is now. Now he's like, he's really hard to get, yeah. you know, because of the success of, you know, you know he, listen, he, he was doing great work, you know, before I met him. But, you know, it's easier to pick up a phone call, pick up a phone now and get somebody after you've, you've won an award. But it's not, uh, you know, documentaries are still, you know, they're, you know, they're not real movies. Actually, it's Fisher Stevens calling. He's the, he's the producer of The Cove. I don't know why he's calling. <laughs> uh, let me just decline him. You can, take, you can take the call if you want. No, 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 I don't. Uh, I'm curious what he's calling because I haven't talked to him in a little while, though. Um, so, uh, so, so like like, like Fisher, Fisher was, you know, Fisher was um, you know, he won the Academy Award, too, with me on that film. And, you know, it's like what, once you've done that, you know that there's a, you've gone through a war together too, right? You know, that you, you almost literally, it, it feels like, you know, there's a battle every day in the edit room because we're all fighting. As I say, Mark Monroe said that like, he said, Louis, your films are, are way different than all the other films I work on because you have a lot of babies you need to kill. Everything is so good that you need to, you know, not, not everything can, can make the film, but that's usually the opposite of most other filmmakers. I think because I think visually, and I think orally, even though my, my hearing's not great, you know, but, I, but I, I, I'm sensitive that you need everything. You need a great story, you need great footage. You know, and f filmmaking is just photography at 24 frames a second. You know, same thing, but you know, um, we're always thinking of like, oh, getting the pieces. And then at the end of the day, it's, it's about the story and the action you want to create from it. You know, so it, you want to think of the end goal. You know, I guess like with, with you know, doing financial planning. It's like the end goal is to, you know, have somebody retire in peace and, you know, security. And, you know, it's not, the end goal is not for you to make money selling products to somebody. You know what I mean? That's the, so, so, you know, I think to the viewer, what's, how that's going to be successful, you know, it's not about you and, and, and only, you know, making use secure and successful you have to always be thinking of the other person the same thing with the film like so the end goal is and, and i think you know everybody that we work with on all these projects even if they're doing you know they're, they're not they're maybe they're a key piece of it but they're not actually involved in making the film they would want to work with us again too because like they they realize that 
the key to their to why they felt so good is because the outcome was so good. I mean, it wasn't about the awards. It's like you know they, you know, we worked with Obscura Digital, who did the projections of endangered species on the Vatican and and uh, United Nations and Empire State Building, and they, you know, they were doing stadium lighting and score, you know, uh, what do you call them the the scoreboards for big, you know, huge like the Dallas Cowboys and you know they're but making you know millions and millions of dollars of contracts but like working with us it's like you know they're projecting endangered species on the vatican where you know the last artist to to do you know any art on the vatican was michelangelo and we're getting we're getting four and a half billion media views and we're inspiring laws that prevent endangered species from coming into countries and that makes you feel really good mm. you know you can't you can't and that's not about me it's about what we did together you know everybody that worked on that project feels like we did something great. We changed the world. We, I couldn't, it was not about me, it's about what we did together. And that that's, makes it really easy to pick up a phone call uh, and, or, you, know, you know, from anybody that has worked on these films and say, you know, I'm you know, the producer of The Cove and I'm working on a film about X. And, it's a, and that sort of triggers a, a response. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's the same, I think, in any business, you know? That, yeah, I get it, I get it. Tell me, um, with Game Changers and the code, from concept to completion, how long do those, do those documentaries take? Is it, is it yeah, 18 months, 24 months, what is it? <laughs> I wish. We're doing one project right now, and it's taken nine months just to get a deal signed. We're doing one on, on plastic pollution. It's taken nine months to just do a development deal. Uh, you know, so the, the code was about five years. Race to Extinction, about five years. Game Changers. Uh, it, I was only on that about three, but I took that project over from somebody else. So how does how do you make money though? I, I mean, I know there's money in a product, but how how do you make money? How do you make a living? How do you make ends meet along the way? You know. Well, we're we're a nonprofit organization, so our, our again our objective isn't to make money. Our our objective is to change the world, not just about ocean issues, but about environmental issues. Now we we've expanded quite a bit from the inception of of the film. Um, I tell people that want to invest in a film for us. I say like, if you want to make money off of a film, you're better off taking your money and going to Vegas because your, your odds are better. You know, The Cove, most of winning documentary in history, but if we had to pay Jim back for the money, we would never would have, we didn't make as much money as he, he paid us to do the film. Uh, Racing Extinction, uh, it was the highest price to be paid for a documentary in the previous five years out of Sundance, but we made about 37, 38 cents on the dollar. Um, the Game Changers, you know, we turned down a $3 million offer from Netflix, for, and we did it for a quarter of a million, uh, because we wanted to have it be an impact film. We wanted to have it not just on Netflix, but on other other channels. So, the 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 forty two executive producers on that film understood we're doing an impact film. You know, if you want to change the world, come to us. If you want to make money, go to somewhere else. You know, we're doing several films right now, and all of them I care deeply about. And we're trying to do an expedited timeline, not to do them. You know, uh, less good or cheap or just cheaper but uh, you know now i'm executive producing films uh so that means i'm just finding the money and organizing the teams behind it i'm directing a few uh we're doing a film right now with um desmond tutu and the dalai lama it's based on their book called the book of joy uh it's like how do you find jo joy in a world of, of sadness a world of sorrow and that's that's that film is really about what we had just talked about before is like how do you find pure joy you know, so because people are, and it's wonderful to to watch the footage of the, these these two guys in the room, these two spiritual leaders from two different walks of life, talking about 
you know, how do you become a better person? And everybody, whether you're doing business, whether you're doing photography, or whether you're one of the world's great spiritual leaders, you come to the same, the same issue, that you're not going to feel human until you're really in service to other people, in service to something larger than yourself. That's the magic. That's the, you know, the one thing that people can walk away from, with, from this, this podcast would be like, it's not about you. You have to be, you know, you have to get outside yourself, get into other people's heads and get into what's going to really serve humanity and make us all better. There's, 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 a, there's a lady I know called Maria Conciusel. Now Maria's about 40, oh, she'll curse me for women saying this, for about 40. I think she might be a bit less than 40. And Maria's Portuguese and she was born into a poor family and adopted when she was younger. And she got a job when she left school after a difficult childhood and um, got a job as a cleaner. Um, but she said, if I'm going to be a cleaner, then I'm going to be the Ronaldo of cleaners. And so she became a cleaner. She then got a chance to go and work in Switzerland as a cleaner and a housekeeper. But in Switzerland, it wasn't part of the EU. So she was working there illegally. She was involved one evening in, in a hit and run. And so oh she was put into hospital and then they realized that she wasn't living there legally. And so they took care of her in hospital until she recovered and they asked her to leave the country. She went to London and she was a cleaner in London. And so she'd been a cleaner or a housekeeper in these three different countries, learnt some language. And then she saw this advert on the side of a, a billboard for cabin crew for Emirates Airlines. And she thought that would never happen to me. But the, the, one of the criteria was that she spoke two languages. She's like, I speak two languages. So she went for the interviews and lo and behold, she landed her dream job. Uh, this was like the best thing ever. Cabin crew, Emirates Airlines, I'm gonna go and live in Dubai, the accommodations paid for, and for her, you know, a, a great income for, for her. One of the first flights she took was to Dakar in Bangladesh. To the, and she was there and she was on a layover for two days, two days and she went for a walk and had a look around and she saw the children in the slums and how they were living and she was, really bothered and moved by it so she flew back to dubai sold all of her possessions flew back to bangladesh to try and give some money to some families and she promised she promised two families she'd try and help she flew back to dubai she gave them some money to get them started she flew back to dubai and she googled how to raise money for charity now bear in mind this is a, a five foot two lady not very not very fit and healthy just a regular lady and the first thing that came up on google was climb everest and she's like well i'm never going to do something like that but it said on google that's the best way to make money and if you're going to raise money for charity so she did some digging around and uh she found somebody that would be prepared to sponsor her okay if she trained and climbed everest now she'd she'd never climbed a sand dune let alone <laughs> let alone climbed a hill or, or been on a hike and she was the first Portuguese woman to climb Everest. Wow. She climbed, she came back, she raised, raised some money. She was very happy. She went back and she promised a hundred kids, the families, there was a hundred children. She promised them she'd try and get them help and get them education. So then she came back to Dubai again, Googled how to raise money for charity. And the next thing after um, Everest was South Pole. So, she went to the South Pole, she, she went then to the North Pole, she then climbed the Seven Summits, she then attempted to swim across the English Channel, all for these children. She, she's got eight Guinness World Records now, and she's taken 600 children out of the slums of Dakar, Bangladesh, and she's been able to give them international education and give them a start in life. Wow. 
And she is a modern day version of Mother Teresa, in my mind. Um, a woman with purpose and a why that, that is, is unshakable in every capacity. And um, there, was a, there was a business conference in Las Vegas called the 10X Growth Conference uh, with Grant and Elena Cardone and a lot of other people, Dana White and stuff were there. And Grant and Elena were here in Dubai last September, October. And I said, can I, let, can I please introduce you to Maria? Can I please, please, please let, just hear what she's got to say? She's very shy, Maria. She's terribly timid and shy. But I'm like, Maria, this is your chance. Talk to these people. Anyway, they heard her story, they flew her then to the conference and they got her in front of 10,000 people to speak, um, to tell her story about what she did and, uh, and how she did it and how she still does it. Even to this day, it's, she's got a one bedroom apartment here in Dubai. There's, I think there's seven kids living with her at the moment because wow. there's something much greater than her. So when, when you talk about purpose, when you talk about you know, whether it's finding your why or something much greater than yourself and hearing you express the way that you express things and then pairing that up with people like Maria's story. I, Louis, I get you. I hear you. I feel you. Uh -huh. I, 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 this kind of stuff uh, moves me and I hope it moves many other people too. Do you, do you think you'll ever stop filmmaking now you get such joy from it? I can't, I, I can't think of why, unless there was something, you know, get the coronavirus and die. But, you know, this, this gives me, you know, when I was a kid, you know, uh, I don't know how, you know, it's hard to gauge how wealthy you were as a kid, but I'd say we're sort of lower middle class to, you know, in the, somewhere in the middle, lower class to middle class, you know, money was- Called average was in issue. England, called average. Yeah, average, yeah, it's just struggling, yeah. you know. Um, I always thought, well, money is going to be the, you know, the answer to you know all of our problems. So that was always on the back of my mind: make enough money so you can, you know, don't have to live with the, the fear like my my mother did. And she's a single single mother. Um, but then, you know, when I was, you know, literally working around the wealthiest people in the world, I realized, okay, something's off here because these people are some of the most miserable people I've ever met you know in terms of like they're not happy you know it's like no, if you're not ha if, no. if you're not happy if you're not happy being the richest guy in the world something's wrong with this equation and so it doesn't you know it's almost the opposite you know the the money that when you get too much money it requires like you know i was talking to a, a friend of mine for i met at fortune magazine the other day about the coronavirus and he's like you know i, I you know he sold all his money sold sorry sold all his stocks went to cash and you know shed his businesses he says i still got 39 people working for me you know i still you know it's like the i got a nanny and i've got you know uh you know I, the nanny goes out and i'm like what you know where's she been you like you it's like you can't control it like i'm pretty simple here i just got you know my my roost is pretty small i've got you know i'm living with my like my mate here and uh you know it's a wonderful little life but you can imagine like you know when you have all this stuff it's all that stuff to take care of, right? And it doesn't Urgent. necessarily, it doesn't bring you more happiness. I've, I, I know that now. Um, Tell everyone about OPS. Tell everyone about it. I want everyone to know about it. Yeah, well, it's, a, you know, like I said, we're, we're doing multiple films right now. And by the way, if anybody here, you know, listening, you know, wants to get part of that good feeling, you can, you can help invest in, 
you know, a project. I'll, I'll tell you what, we're, we're doing about six projects right now. I'll try to remember them. I told you about the one about, you know, the, Out, the Dalai Lama. You know, we, we still need some funding for that. Uh, all these films I'm going to tell you about need, need funding. Um, we're doing a film about plastic pollution, like plastic pollution in the ocean, but we're also working on, you know, what are the solutions? Everything we do is solutions based. We're not trying to make people just feel bad. I'm doing a film right now called Food 2.0. It's a series and, you know, part of it is the coronavirus. People don't realize that two thirds of the infectious diseases we have are related to what we put in our mouths. You know, somebody, you know, about 1908 cannibalized a chimp in Africa and that gave us AIDS. You know, and 36 million people have died, another million people die each year. You know, that's because of somebody cannibalizing a chimp. You know, patient zero was SARS with somebody eating a civet cat or a pangolin that was infected by a bat. The same conditions created the COVID-19. You know, so and there, let's just talk about this for a second because it's everybody's mind. Everybody's isolated right now. And, you know, we talk a little bit about, you know, we're all worried about a vaccine. Well, the way to vaccinate the world for this ever happening again is stop happening with what happened in China. Now, I know this, this can sound uh, xenophobic, but this has happened before. At SARS in 2002, 2003 killed, uh, I don't know, over 7,000 people, tens of thousands people being infected. Um, that was created by the live markets in Guangzhou. There, they, they, they eat bats over there. They're eating bats because of the, for medicinal belief. They believe that if you eat a bat, it's going to improve your night vision or glycoma or your vision. Because you, if you eat a bat, you're going to have what makes a bat feel like a bat. It can see in the dark, right? So there's a very, you know, it's not just a Chinese belief. It goes back, you know, almost 5,500 years ago to Egypt. They still believe that. That's why bats, which carry hundreds of viruses, are in the market with civet cats. It creates a perfect storm for viruses that created SARS, 2002, 2003. Three months after WHO, the World Health Organization, declares it you know, over, the markets open back up again. I went to Guangzhou and I was like horrified to see the exact same animals in the market that caused it happening the first time. Okay, the second time, Wuhan, bats in the market infecting a civet cat or a pangolin. It happened again. You know, so xenophobia, you know, is this a, a Chinese problem? Yes, it's a Chinese problem. They've done it again. The markets are being opened up again, not in Wuhan, but in other places around the country. This is going to happen again. And that's because of this dumb, sorry, you're not supposed to swear on your program, but like they're, they're eating bat dung over there. They don't eat, they not only eat bats, they eat bat dung under the belief this is going to help you know, Google it, have your, have people Google it, you know, yeah, yeah. bat, bat feces throughout, you know, China with TCM, traditional Chinese medicine. Until we stop the live markets, until we, we stop animals that have these viruses, they, the, the viruses don't affect bats. Those, you're, we're collecting viruses. If we're, we go to some other place where they haven't been exposed to it, we're going to kill people. That's what, you know, in the new world, when people came over from Europe to America, 90% of Native Americans died because of mumps and smallpox, but we were kind of vaccinated from it. You know, we immune from it. They weren't. So it, it, all those diseases rampaged through all the Americas and killed both the populations before the explorers even got here. Um, so we're doing a film right now on, you know, the, the relationship between these uh, infectious diseases and animal products. So until we shut the live markets down and in China and Asia, the rest of Asia, this is going to happen again. So I don't want this to become the norm. 
you know, and people, they have to get over this idea that it's xenophobia. It's like, if it's happened once and it's happened twice, you know, sh shame on you the first time, shame on me the second time, the second time, we're all nuts, you know, and we got to stop that, you know, and, it, and it's, it's a complicated story. They believe that TCM is a really powerful, you know, force in, in China and, and uh, traditional medicine all over the, all over the world. But these are really some old ideas and a lot of them don't hold up, you know, in the modern world, people shouldn't be eating bat dung under the belief that it's going to help your vision. I mean, that, that's what's got, that's what's crashing the markets. That's what's killing people. That's what, uh, you know, I, don't, I think there's like six, six or seven million people out, uh, more people out again this, this week in, in, in America from people eating bats and bat dung because they're in the markets with these other animals. We got to get to the source of the problem. So we're doing a film that's, you know, based on that. Um, we're doing a film on female big wave surfers. You know, there's a, for the first time in the sport of big wave surfing, women now have a, you know, a, a place in the lineup and we're featuring four women. That What's are, the name of that place where the big surf is? I think I've, I've seen a little bit about this. I think Martin was telling uh, me. The one in, the one in uh, America is called Mavericks. It's Mavericks. About, it's about 15, 20 miles from here. It's one, like one of these, there's, there's about five of them on the planet, right? That are really huge waves when you get these, these big storms happening you got these ferocious ways but women have always been you know ostracized but these four women fought and they got a, a role in the lineup so we're doing a film about it's really about female empowerment mm -hmm. um like i said the, the dalai lama film the plastics film uh we're doing a film on the loser ecosystem this is a, it's called a, we call it the last place on earth because it's the last place on earth where uh wild tigers rhinos elephants and orangutans are in the wild and it's being decimated because of Palm oil. Palm oil. It's, and so we're. Uh, Is we're it Indonesia or Malaysia? It's Indonesia, it's mm -hmm. in Sumatra, north, northeastern or uh, northwestern Sumatra, uh, the last place on earth. So if anybody wants to, to help out in these films, if you have somebody that has too much money, uh, they can, <laughs> you know, have get, get a hold of us, you know, the Oceanic Preservation Society. And uh, so what's the website? So everyone knows. Is it .com or .org? It's a .org. Yeah, opsociety.org opsociety.org we'll make sure we put that link on there so you basically want my wealthy listeners and viewers that have got more money than they need that want to put it to good use that know they're not going to get a great return on it but are going to make a difference by trying to trying to support a really important cause yeah no i mean that's like all of our films have outcomes you know they have metrics that are you know pretty incredible you know i can i can vouch for that that we don't get involved in a project we don't think it's going to change the world we don't do it you know we don't do films just because we think that they can make money in fact you know um if they if they do we try to put them not try we do like i don't take investments like i don't say hey you're gonna get a share of this movie and we'll give you a return the return if we make any money from a film uh we put it back into trying to solve the issue so we have still we have still, still have people working on the code on racing extinction uh, Game Changers has a whole team of people that work on uh, the impact. So, you know, as important as a film is to make, it's, you have to also do an impact campaign. So like what we do with Racing Extinction is that we still have um, teaching materials that go out to schools all around the world so people, so kids can mm -hmm. watch the film for free. And then they can, in their classrooms, depending on their grade, they get these teaching plans that they could teach them about, you know, they can dive deeper into these issues and then they learn what, what are the solutions. So that's, that's the feel good part of it. Like, it's not just a film. It's about, you know, how do you 
leverage the film to, to help change things. So yeah, um, yeah, have us, you know, they can get a hold of Martin or they can get a hold of me through, um, I, I work. I work with an organisation um, here in the UAE that works on sustainability projects, and I forget the guy's name. There's a, there was a movie made about him. There's a Pakistani guy that used to get kids out of child slave labour. Kailash. Oh, yeah. he, he won the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, I saw that film. Yeah, you know him. Yeah, I don't know him. I know the. I know the film. Okay, so he's, I think he's either Pakistan or India. I think it's Pakistan, but he was doing stuff in India. But anyway, um, yeah, Kailash is his name. And so mm. he, uh, uh, he and uh, uh, there's a group of us, basically. There's a group, a group of wealthy people here in Dubai uh, that get together and focus on sustainability projects. So if you're ever here in Dubai, then I would love, love, love to get you to meet them all. And if you're not, well, obviously you won't be anytime soon, but if you're um if you'd like to then i'd like to get them all on a, a webinar but with you babe but maybe or even a, a zoom call there's probably 20 of them and maybe we can all have a chat together and see what, what Love to. Impact Love we to. can make all right good i tell you what i've really really enjoyed chatting away with you today you're a fantastic Likewise. guy your work is just incredible i just I'm so, I'm so, I'm so glad that Martin, you know, has the opportunity. He told me a long time ago, and I probably, probably shouldn't be saying this on the podcast, but he told me a long time ago while he was, while he took him a while to get the job with you. And, uh, he's like, Spence, this is the one I really want. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is the one Spence. How do we make it happen? <laughs> oh, well, good. So, uh, I'm so glad that you've, uh, yeah, he found you, you found him and everything's worked well. Louis, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story. I could talk to you for the next two or three hours for sure, but um, I'm sure we've got other things that we need to do too. But uh, <laughs> thanks again for your time. I hope you uh, stay you. safe over there in the, the United States. I enjoy your day. It looks a bit drizzly outside, but um, yeah, take care. All the best. And uh, hopefully we'll catch you again soon. All right. See you, Spencer. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. Let's <laughs> go.